Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to this 25th episode of A Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. My name is Ed Hill, and this podcast, if you haven't heard it before, is dedicated to the journals written by my great-great-grandfather, William Mowbray Campbell-Scott, way back in the 1840s. And they primarily deal with his time working as an engineer, firstly on a steam railway in Italy, in Milan, and then later on working in the Mint in Mexico. If you haven't heard the podcast before, I read extracts from the journals, and then as I go along I comment on some of the things that William talks about. Often he references historical facts or geographical things, or just makes humorous observations about stuff. So I then go into a bit more detail about what he may have been discussing. So it's kind of quite a good way, really, of learning a bit more about the history, not just of that period, but the history that he refers to as well. So it can broadly cover really any topic that he happens to mention. If you have listened to this podcast before, thanks very much for tuning in again. It's very much appreciated. And this episode is a bit different. Well, actually a lot different from the previous episodes that I've described, because this one I'm very glad to say that because of William's engineering exploits, and particularly railway exploits, I managed to contact the railway historian Anthony Dawson, and he very kindly did an interview about this period of the railways and the expansion of the railways in Europe. And it really is a fascinating discussion about it, and we cover some of the things that William discusses and then kind of explore those points. So it really is... uh, a great interview about this era of the railways really and Anthony really does know his subject extremely well so it was very enlightening for me as well to have the conversation with him and learn an awful lot about that development of the railways way back in the early to mid 1800s. Incidentally if you want to know more about railway history Anthony has some some very interesting uh, videos and things on his YouTube channel about railways of this era. So just to say a little bit about a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, this is episode 25. There is actually an introduction episode that you can listen to, which is about half an hour, which explains the background of the journals and how they've been passed down my family, because this is the first time they're being aired in public. They were basically passed down my mother's side of the family, and then in recent years I have been preparing them and researching them, I suppose, and have ended up doing this podcast about it. So that's where we are. If you do enjoy the podcast, there's a YouTube channel as well. All the audio episodes are on there. Then do listen in. As I say, with most podcasts these days, if you Google a grand tour with my great-great-granddad, you'll find it on pretty well all the podcast platforms like Spotify and 
Apple Podcasts and Amazon Music and all the rest. So that's the way to do it. I just thought I'd also mention on the social media side of it, there's a Twitter page, sorry, an X page, an X Twitter page, and that is Scott of the Historic at 3G Grand Tour. So that's the number three, 3G Grand Tour. There's also a Mastodon account, and that's at scotted at universadon.com. There's a Facebook page, which is at Grand Tour with my great-great-granddad. And if you want to engage with me through those social media channels, by all means do. be great to get some feedback. What I thought I'd do with this episode is just to give a sort of sense of this era that William is involved in and that Anthony and myself discussed in the interview. I thought I'd just take a couple of extracts from the journal. They've sort of been abridged, so they're not too long. Just to give a flavour of the time in which he's writing and how in what he writes you can see this moment of development of transport. You know, it really is the era where the transition from the stagecoach to the steam locomotive is happening. And of course, this will have tremendous impact on people's ability to travel and on society in general. And uh, these are themes that Anthony and myself discuss. So um, I thought I'd do that. And then after the interview, I thought I'd just do another short extract of when he drives the train on this railway in Milan for the first time, just to explain William travels out to Italy to supervise the opening of this railway in Milan, which runs from Milan to Monza. And the trains are being exported from the UK to run on the rails on the railway that has been built there. And so they need an engineer who knows how to drive the trains. And somehow William gets the job. So that uh, really is the basis of his role as an engineer on this Italian railway. I do hope you enjoy this episode. I really enjoyed doing it and I think uh, Anthony did too because it just is a really momentous time in history that affects so many things and there are comparisons with the way technology develops today as well. But it begins with this extract from the journals, in fact, pretty well opening first page in which William describes the beginning of his journey. It was early in the spring of the year 1840 that I was engaged for the purpose of proceeding to Milan, the capital of the Lombardy-Venetian kingdom, to superintend the locomotive department of the railroad, then commencing, and at a short distance at that time completed, between that city and Venice, in pursuance of which I departed from London in the evening of the 24th of March by mail coach to Dover. Soon after passing Blackheath, the snow commenced falling very rapidly, the cold at the same time being very intense. On arriving at Dartford, seventeen miles from town, I descended from the coach for the purpose of warming and refreshing the inward man by a copious libation of brandy, sugar, and hot water, a mixture, by the way, of which, in cold weather especially, I am particularly partial to. Scarcely had I time to gather my thoughts when I was unpleasantly aroused by the reality of proceedings by the rough voice of the coachman, telling me that if I was not quickly in my seat, he would leave me. Well, the coachmen are a race that for a long period have held despotic sway over the bodies of travelling Englishmen, but they are now almost of the things that were, a remnant of the light of other days, for even since the period of which I speak, the all but completion of the London and Dover Railroad has told the death knell of my gruff friend the Dover Mail coachman. 
Once the horses had been changed, we proceeded at a very rapid rate to make up the time lost by the snow, and as the sun was rising, we had just reached the heights above Dover. At this moment, the morning gun was fired, and cold and weary as I was, I could not but feel highly gratified and animated by the scene that presented itself to my view. Passing through the town, and proceeding along the margin of the sea, we arrived at the foot of Shakespeare's cliff, where the stupendous work of driving a tunnel through that mountain was at that time in progress. The tunnel is double, and the whole of the work executed in the best manner. The further progress of the work since that period, and the immense undertaking of blasting, has placed the name of William Cubitt and the South Eastern Railway at a distance above all competitors. The immense labour and skill required in the sea embankment from the tunnel to the town will forever stand as one of the brightest achievements of English capital and enterprise. So uh, I'm delighted to be joined by Anthony Dawson, who's a railway historian and very much specialises in the early railways, which is the uh, time which uh, William was involved in. So I wondered if I could first ask you why that era of steam railways appeals to you so much. I think it's because it's the it's the beginnings of it. It's the fundamental start of it all. It's where it all began and it's where they established the basic principles of what the railways were, if that makes sense. Yeah. There'd been various forms of railways in Britain since the Elizabethan period with wooden wagonways and then plateways and so forth. But the 1820s, 1830s, where you start to get the evolution of the, the steam railway and the idea of a public railway. And that's where it all begins. And to understand where you end up at the end of, say, the steam period in 1968, you need to really understand what they were doing 138 years earlier, if that makes sense. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah. it's laying the foundations of what came later. And, and the fact is that they got the foundations right from the start and they pretty much had to. Mm. And I suppose also that was the huge technological leap, if you like. I mean, the principle of a steam-powered locomotive. They'd actually made that principle work, which was the massive technical development before that steam engine had been stationary. Everything else is further iterations of improving that massive technological leap, if you see what I mean. Yeah, yeah. Um, you actually touched on something very interesting there, saying that, because I, I mentioned this question about how George Stevenson and the rocket seemed to get you know, known as that kind of landmark moment. But actually, by 1840, for example, which is the time Williams working on the railways, actually, the development of those engines and that technology had been going on for quite a long time, hadn't it? You know, and there were lots of companies involved as well, as I understand. So I just wondered if you could comment a bit more on that, almost like pre-Stevenson um, history, maybe. Yeah, I mean, by 1840, the, the steam locomotive was a mature technology. The very first locomotive engine, i.e. a self-propelled steam engine, actually goes back well before people like Stevenson Trevithick. It goes back to France, to uh, Nicolas Cugnot, oh. who built his Fardier Vapeur, or, or, or steam drag or steam carriage, in 1769. And that was also the first high-pressure steam engine, as it operated at four atmospheres. And this was at a time when people like James Watt were building stationary engines who, which were running on less than one atmosphere, maybe about half atmosphere, just a couple of PSI, as they thought high-pressure steam engines were dangerous. Mm. But Cugnot's road locomotive fell foul of the politics of the time, 
and then nothing really happened in France. And then in Britain, you have Richard Trevidic coming along mm. with high-pressure steam, with building his high-pressure stationary engines and his high-pressure locomotive engines, including his, his two road coaches, and, of course, his famous locomotive at Penudaran in 1804. But Trevithick was many things, but one of the things he was not was a good businessman. Right. And he died in penury in the 1830s, bless him. <laughs> so it was up to others to take the idea of a self-moving locomotive forward. There's a lot of dead ends. So in the Napoleonic Wars, there was a cost of living crisis but in particular the cost of horses crisis right so it wasn't just the, only the cost of fodder to feed the horses it was also the cost of horses themselves which had doubled trebled quadrupled overnight so coal owners needed something else to take the coal to market mm. so you're getting leads you have john blankensopper matthew murray coming along with their rack and pinion locomotive in 1811 and the, the very first commercial steam locomotive ran in Leeds in 1812, yeah. which is years before Rocket came along. Yeah, yeah. But, the, but then you also get um, people building locomotives with legs or pulling themselves along a chain yes. because the fundamental problem in the locomotive was essentially too heavy for the brittle cast iron track, which is why Blankensop used a rack and pinion system. So the locomotive was light enough so it didn't break the rails, mm-hmm. but then it wasn't heavy enough to pull itself along to be provided with a rack and pinion. And and the biggest evolution for the railway locomotive isn't the engine itself or the track it ran on. Mm. I've I've just come back from Scotland excavating the seventeen twenty two Tranent Cockenzie Wagonway up there and excavating its iron face from eighteen fifteen and that was laid with cast iron rails. Mm. They were only three feet long and came in a fixed length. Which meant there was a lot of joints. Yes. And it meant in trying to lay a curve or go around a corner, you've just got these little short lengths of track and you have to stagger the joints to go around the curve. Yes. So, it's, so it looks like an old-fashioned threepenny bit. Yes, it's not a yes. proper curve. Yes. And it's not a type of railway where you could actually put a locomotive on it. No. It would just fall to bits. So it's when they come up with wrought iron rail in 15-foot lengths, mm. which can be bent to a curve, you then suddenly have a technology where the locomotive can really spread its wheels, if that makes sense. Yes, yes. So before you were struggling with cast iron rails, and then suddenly they have wrought iron rails in 1822, and then that's where you get the major development of the uh, railway, but particularly by George Stevenson, because all the other pioneers had fallen by the wayside, Mm. largely a result of uh, a change in the economy. Mm after the bottle of Waterloo, and again in the with the cost of horses. Yeah. But Stevenson stuck with it, and it was Stevenson who recognised that a railway is a transport machine, and it's got two parts. One part is mobile, and that's the locomotive, and the other part of it is fixed, and that's the track. Yeah. And you yeah. can't have one without the other. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's very interesting. We touch on that in a kind of particular way. They did it in the railway that William's working on in Italy. But it is that development of wrought iron is actually fundamental to the evolution of railways. And the sudden, as you say, you mentioned it's about 1820, isn't it? That that must have really been the thing that kicked it on as a feasible way of of moving the weights and the tracks and uh, sorry the and the carriages and everything involved so yeah yeah and and it also impacted on the evolution of the locomotive as well 
because Trevithick and Blenkinsop had used cast iron boilers, hmm. which <laughs> isn't terribly safe, yeah. but they worked well enough. So again, with the evolution of wrought iron and ever increasing size of wrought iron plate, means you can start having wrought iron rather than cast iron boilers, yeah. wrought iron track yes. rather than cast iron track. Um, this is a sort of thing regarding the language around railways that struck me in uh, in William's journals. He nearly always uses the word railroad, which I kind of always assumed was a kind of an American <laughs> evolution of <laughs> railway. Um, but he uses that term all, nearly always through the journals. And I just wondered when in Britain the term railway became more prominent rather than railroad. Probably in the 1840s. But railway, railroad, wagonway, wagon road are all colloquialisms. And it all depends about whereabouts in the country you are. Mm. So in the 18th century, there were two competing schools of railways, one in Shropshire and one up in Durham, around in the northeast around Newcastle. And the Shropshire school, it was a railway. Yes. And they built the, they preferred using a narrower gauge, so less uh-huh. than four feet. Yeah. And up around Newcastle, it was always a wagon road. <laughs> right or a railroad, and they preferred a wider gauge of, say, four foot to five foot. So Dr. Michael Lewis in his book um, on early railways says that you can probably tell where the engineer was from or where somebody from was, how they referred to what we now call a railway, if it was a railway or a railroad, Mm. or if it was a wagon road, Mm. um, whether you were a Geordie. Or you were a Salopian. Yes. <laughs> so it's kind of almost more a local, or it was originally it's based on a local thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think near, there's a couple of times that William does use the word railway later on, I think, but uh, most of the time it's railroad. Um, something that interested me and kind of struck me reading the journals is this, uh, obviously there's a very rapid expansion of railway in the UK, but I hadn't quite appreciated how rapidly it happens in the rest of the world, and particularly in Europe, very much with this exporting of the locomotives to foreign countries, which is obviously what's happening with William to Italy. But I actually going on your website, I've noticed you. there's a lot of accounts of you discussing engines that were exported at that time. But it really was very quickly adopted by, particularly in Europe, wasn't it? This technology, which quite surprised me how rapid that was i've always assumed that britain was way out in front and but it almost seems almost as uh, almost as soon as the development gets to a point where it's good enough to work it's spreads really fast yeah the evolution of the railways in europe was pretty much curtailed by the napoleonic wars due to the massive upheaval the economic problems Mm. and the continental system which effectively cut britain off from the rest of europe and not not just in terms of the flow of goods and services but flow of people and ideas if that makes sense mm. so we know in 1814 during that very short peace between napoleon's two abdications french engineers came over to britain they went to the middleton railway saw the railway operating and came back and published their results, including drawings of the Middleton engines. Mm, mm. That was in 1815. Mm. In 1817, in Liège, there's one of these Blenkinsop locomotives operating. Mm. Uh, and two of them are built in Prussia in 1815 and 1816. Mm. So European railways, steam railways, kick off quite early. Mm. And, and we know 
uh, German engineers were fascinated by what was going on with the Stockton and Darlington, and uh, two of them called von Decken and von Einhausen came over and studied everything. And their report is a fascinating insight into what was going on for Stockton and Darlington, the Liverpool and Manchester and things like that. Mm-hmm. But it's the massive success of, say, the Liverpool and Manchester with its international opening that really kickstarts the railway revolution across Europe. But just to go back a little bit, in France, the rail, the steam railway there was homemade, was homegrown. Right. You have Marc and Paul Seguin, who were working in the south of France near Lyon, and they wanted to build a, a steam railway in the 18, early 1820s. Mm. Um, and they built their locomotive. I mean, they, they imported two locomotives from Robert Stevenson Company, and it was Paul and Marc who actually invented the multitubular locomotive boiler. Right. Two years before it was first essayed on Rocket. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there's a wonderful letter from Paul Seguin, who was at the Reynolds Trials in 1829, who yeah. writes to Marc, because they'd wanted to start exporting locomotives from France to Britain. They thought it was a brilliant business opportunity for their foundry. And Paul Seguin sees Rocket and he says, Mon Dieu, they have copied our boiler, <laughs> broken our French patent, which we have published. How dare you do this? And you waste the mark. And Mark goes, oh, well, bother. There goes that business. Yeah, gosh. But it, but then it, that raises all sorts of questions about who got there first and this flow of technology. Yes. It's very interesting you mentioned that because one of the reasons I asked that question was at one point in a journal, William comments about his... He sees a work somewhere and he's travelled down to Italy, and I think it's in France, and um, he expresses his concern that British technology is being too easily exported and the know-how is being too easily exported to what you might call our competitors. But it actually strikes me, from what you're saying, it was actually a lot more nuanced than that and a lot more two-way, and who who actually was inventing things first and who wasn't wasn't quite as straightforward as... As perhaps William saw it in that way. Yeah, but the um, the major problem for people want in Europe wanting to import new ideas and technology was protectionism, economic protectionism after 1815, both in Britain and France. So in France, they had to pay custom dues up to 50% of the value, and the same was true trying to export into the United States, mm-hmm. where custom dues are very expensive. But there was one sneaky way around it was that in France and in Prussia, if you wanted to import a new technology, you could do so as a scientific model, free of customs charges on the understanding that you would not take out a patent on this object you have imported, which is how Marc Sagan imported his two Stevenson locomotives. He imported them as scientific models. Yes, yes. One went to Monsieur Allette to be dismantled and drawn, yeah. and the other one was squiddled away in Sagan's own workshop to be dismantled and rebuilt. Yeah, and these were full-size engines, but they just full, called full them size models. models. They just called them models, yeah. Yeah, and, and that's how other uh, early French railways were able to import planet locomotives. They were imported as scientific models to be studied mm. with a tacit approval of the Minister of the Interior, the Minister of Commerce, and organisations like the Conservatoire des Arts Métiers in Paris, they'd import these things, dismantle, take drawings of them, mm. 
and then the conservatoire would publish a portfolio of all the drawings mm. to go around all the foundries in France, and they would build them. Yeah. It, same happened in Germany, but with major foundries in France, for example, like at Le Creusot, that had been the old royal foundry, but it had been restarted by um, John and William Wilkinson, British iron, iron masters who'd come over yeah. to restart it before Schneider took on Le Creusot later on. Mm. So there's a lot of interplay of technology, but there's also a lot of espionage and trying to get around this protectionism. Yes. It's funny you mention that because William mentions in when he's in Paris, he goes to see an exhibition of, I think these are static steam engines, but he mentions the models and, um, you know, Bolton and Watts engines and stuff like that, which by then seems fairly old technology. But... um, I think in, he's again expressing this concern that these models are giving the game away of what yeah. you know what this technology is, and I imagine they were scaled models rather than actual full scale examples as you're talking. But I suppose the principle is still the same. You can work out how something works from the model, couldn't you? Usually, scale working models are the one to eight or one to five. Right. Um, I mean, today there's a, there's a beautiful gallery of models at the Arrêt Metier in Paris all these scale working models of locomotives and steam engines. Mm. And there's a beautiful one to five scale model of a planet locomotive, mm. which was used as a basis where you can copy this and, and build technology from that. But France had that legacy, the tradition of model building going back into the 17th century. Mm. Same if you go to the Musée de l'Armée and go to Salle Gribeauval, there's all these one to eight, one to fifth scale working models of artillery. Gosh, yes. And, of course, the whole idea of, a, of of what we would understand as technical drawing. Yes. Again, that originates in France with the French military, and that was a top military secret. Mm. So it was a good way of using their in, or exporting the uh, intellectual property, but in, the, in a, uh, a kind of underhand way, really. Wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> Moving on to the particular engine that's called the Lombarda, which is the first one that William actually drives in Italy. It was built by J and G Rennie in London. So, and there are two engines: there's the Lombarda and the Milano. I think. Now, this was something I again I didn't quite realise, but there are all these sort of works, aren't there? Building engines, and you said actually each of them are kind of building a version of a, a locomotive, but they have their own slight differences between the ones which the actual foundries make. So, I don't know if J and G Rennie were working off a model of a of another person's drawings or whatever they would seem to be very much a more general manufacturer they're making like biscuit making machines and they're very much involved in marine and yeah propellers and things like that but yeah i just wondered if you could kind of comment on that as i understand it the engines actually weren't that reliable when they got out there and they they got some others that uh, were made yeah, by I mean, stevenson but just on this sort of term of i don't know why why perhaps they were chosen as the initial contractor to to get the, the engines well, from. Rennies began as civil engineers because John and George Rennie had um, been the engineers in Liverpool and Manchester because they were the, the right sort of people right. to appeal to the um, gentry who were basically nimbies against the thing. Uh, George Stevenson with his broad Geordie accent was not the right type of person. Uh, really, really. And George's performance before Parliament as well had been atrocious with people thinking he was mad and couldn't understand him. Really? They really? obviously hadn't got closed caption subtitling. <laughs> yeah. But a lot of firms produced locomotives under licence from the likes of Stevenson, 
So you see a lot of firms churning out copies of Stevenson Payton T-types of mm. 222 passenger engines or churning out 042 luggage engines, a bit like Lion, mm. just turning them out under license. Mm. And Stevenson's were very good thanks to a Quaker chap called Edmund Folger Starbuck, nothing to do with the coffee people. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> who was effectively Stevenson's heavy man and enforcer for his patents. Right. Uh, and if they were companies weren't paying up, they'd send round Starbuck, which is a very peculiar thing of to think of, of, of a Quaker. Yes, being Some a hard the most man. ever being a hitman <laughs> or a heavy. Um, but, but he was also going into Europe as well. Right. To enforce patent rights in Europe. Yeah. It's funny because I, I know that um, these two engines, the Lombarda and Milano, run for about a year, I think. And then there are other trains that get exported again while William is still there. But from what I found out, they, they were made by Stevenson. And I think they were perhaps a bit more reliable than these ones that, that were being made by Rennie. But it's very hard to get too much information about that. I think one of the Stevenson's ones may have been called Adder or something, but I don't know if there are any records of what might have been exported by Stevenson's at that time. But uh, I don't know if you'd know if there anything uh, information like that could be. The Stevenson's uh, archive is really complete. Is it? It's confusing because for the first... 10 or so years, there's at least three or four competing works lists all running their own numbering. Right. So you have to work out which order book you're in as to which number series it is. It's yes. very, very confusing. Right. And sometimes the handwriting is appalling. Yes. But up to the 1860s, it's very complete. Right. With full specifications of the engine's tender and who's it's intended for and how's it going to get there. Yeah. So you, you think there probably would be a good chance that it is recorded somewhere in their archive of oh, absolutely, the yeah. that they exported to uh, Milan, yeah. yeah. Um, I'll have to uh, try and uh, get, get get there one time, maybe. But where is their archive? Is that, is it's that, at uh, York. It's at York Railway Museum, is yeah. it? Yeah. Okay, I'll have, to, uh, I'll have to do a trip up there, maybe, and uh, see if I can I've, get I've got most of it up to about 1845 on my hard drive. Right. I've got a reference of one being called something like the Adder or something or the Arda or something like that. I don't Adler, know. If, it's yeah, a bit of Adler. Of course, it could have been an Italian variation on a name as well. So uh, I'll have to. Uh, yeah, it's the one thing I've seen it referenced to, but only very briefly. Uh, the reason I thought that perhaps because I think it's George Rennie had been at one time he'd been master of the the mint in London and supervisor of the machinery and works there. And that's William's previous job as working as an engineer in the Mint in London. Yeah. And I, I, I've kind of assumed there must be this connection that he knew the company well. And when they exported these engines out there, they said, look, we need someone who can do it. And perhaps they knew William. Yeah. But actually, that's another thing I mentioned. That's actually very common, isn't it? There's lots of examples where these British-made uh, trains are, are sent out with... English or British drivers. William's not actually that unusual because I've, I've yeah. seen that referenced in some of your videos that you've made. It's usually the, the they would send out... The locomotives were exported, dismantled. Right. And were sent out with usually with one or two fitters right. who would re-erect them and test them at the other end. Mm. And nine times out of ten, the fitter would stay with that engine and become its first driver and take... Mm -hmm. but not just be the driver but basically the, the first locomotive foreman yeah because they knew how these things were built how these things were maintained and they would train the first 
group of drivers, firemen, and very often the guards as well. And in other instances, say in um, the Leipzig Dresden Railway, importing a complete railway package, locomotive, track, carriages and staff, all exported from Britain. Oh, right, really, yeah, yeah. Buying it all off the shelf. Yeah, yeah. Because William describes his role as driver and supervisor, I think. And he definitely, at some points in the journal, talks of how he supervised the equipment that should be in the workshops and things like that. So... Mm. um, Unfortunately, it doesn't go into a huge amount of detail, like on the very much nuts and bolts role he has in a way, which is a little bit frustrating, you know, because he does <laughs> tend to be discussing the sort of cultural sights and sounds that he's seeing, perhaps more than the, the real engineering things of it. So because there's a couple of incidents in the railway, this next question was about basically, you know, the sort of dangers of railway travel early on in their existence. And... Not only are there quite dangerous accidents happening with the technology itself, you know, a lot of boilers exploding and things like that, but also just people getting too close to trains on the track and being hit by them and stuff like this. But it doesn't seem to deter people. Um, coming across my research, um, just because he goes on a train from Paris to Versailles, about a year later there's a terrible accident and about 200 people get killed and stuff like that. But it just strikes me that because, I don't know, what you think people's attitude to it was, but they were still willing to go on these trains despite, it seems to me, quite high rates of uh, accidents that happened early on with the technology. It was because, rather like now, the railway was convenient. Yeah. It emerged in 1830 as a, as a sort of a novelty. Mm. If you look at something like Liverpool and Manchester Railway, within the first three months it had become an established part of doing things because it was convenient, it was fast, it was cheap. It was relatively reliable. But the problems for the Liverpool and Manchester was that the travelling public took a long time to adapt to it. Yes. Because they were still used to doing things at stagecoach speed. Yeah. Uh, that's not to say stagecoaches were safe, because they weren't, especially <laughs> if the horses ran away or if they were overloaded or a wheel broke. Yeah. But on the Liverpool and Manchester, you still see people trying to alight from a moving train. Uh, because they weren't judging the speed, they weren't judging the distance, or people getting off to collect their hat. Yes, yes. The the big problem they did have was the issue of brakes and stopping these things, because the locomotives didn't have brakes on them. The, the way you slowed down a, a locomotive like Plyot or Payton T was to put it in reverse and to put steam through the steam circuit the other way around, to use back pressure in the cylinders to stop it. Mm. Not a case of wheels spinning around like Casey Jones, mm. but a very gentle coming to a stop using that. It, it takes a lot of skill to do it, yeah. and it's a lot of fun to do it. Yeah, That's how it was braked. The tender brakes were a handbrake, and the carriages would have had a handbrake manned by a guard. But on many railways, you, you had two guards, one at the front, one at the back, so if a train of five or six carriages, there's only two braked vehicles on it. Mm. That's not really going to stop it. Mm. Um, and the accident on the Paris-Versailles area at Meudon in 1842, that was due to the train being overloaded, mm. completely overloaded. Mm. It was full to capacity by the time it left. The accident was caused by the, the breakage of a locomotive axle at the front, mm. a locomotive called Mathieu Murray. It had been built in Leeds. The axle broke and the engine behind it piled over and you ended up with a pile of carriages and people metres high. Yeah, yeah. But what made it worse was because the passengers were locked into the carriages. Mm. 
But that was understandable in context because a, a couple of weeks before, someone had tried to commit suicide by jumping out of a carriage. Right. So the railway took the decision to, no, we will lock the carriage doors to prevent this happening. Uh, then you yeah. have the accident at, at Meurdon, where people were burned alive and it was hard to identify the bodies because there's nothing left other than their teeth. Mm. The law was then changed that said, no, carriages aren't going to have the doors locked because people will die. Yeah. Because it was the fire, wasn't it, that really... It was the fire. Yeah, yeah. That it, was rather, it was rather like Quintus Hill in 1916, nearly a century earlier. But it did lead to an understanding in safety and metal fatigue. Yes. I wondered about this because William's travelling in it about 1840, about two years before, and I wondered whether yeah. the carriages were locked. But probably when he got in it, they weren't. They probably weren't, no. No, no. So, um, as you said, I, that, that interesting thing, it was, it was really the first example where they began to look at the concept of metal fatigue, wasn't it, because of yeah. the axle breaking. So, as I say, given the few incidents that happened on William's Railway, I think it is very much that thing that you referred to there, that people just weren't used to things going this fast. No. <laughs> you know, and so they just misjudged distances and stuff, you know, quite often. And then that seems to me, with the particular accidents that happened on Williams Railway, the real cause of the problem. Fortunately, they don't have any technical problems or explosions or anything like that. But it's just people not being able to judge just how quick, because I think that. I don't know, a coach, stagecoach maximum is, what, about eight miles an hour, maybe? Eight miles an hour, yeah. Yeah, yeah. so and what sort of speeds would these trains have been able to manage at that time? 20 to 25. Right. But we know, like, uh, Robert Stevenson's um, planet in 1830 went from Liverpool to Manchester in under an hour. Yeah. So she's making at least 30 miles an hour. Yeah. William talks about going from Milan to Monza, which is only eight miles, but he go, he go, he talks about, I think on average, the journey was done in 20 minutes, but he does say at one point, I've done it in 11. <laughs> <laughs> oh, with the brace of that period, no, thank you. <laughs> so uh, yeah, maybe hopefully there weren't many passengers on that day or it was the last train back or, or something, yeah. I don't know. And then no one was risking on it. And he thought he'd really open it up, I don't know. So just to mention, as we touched on earlier on about wrought iron rails and things like that, in the example of Williams Railway, it looks like they didn't actually use sleepers. They used almost like stone blocks to put the railways. And then every, I don't know, few yards, there was a steel cross member that was meant to keep the gauge in line. Seems a bit of an overcomplicated way of doing it to me. But I just thought, if, had you have you heard of any other examples where that may have been, been the case? And was there... Because the railway sleeper seems a pretty dependable sort of technology to me to have diverted from, you know. The wooden railway sleeper is quite a late addition. Oh, is it? Is it? So from about 1770, railways were laid with, where they were iron, were laid in stone blocks. All right, okay. Just two rows of stone blocks with ballast packed around them. Yeah. For the simple reason that you had to keep the space between the rails clear for a horse to walk. So if you're using transverse sleepers, the horse will be constantly falling over it. Ah, right. Yes, I see. I understand. But the problem with this is, and again, this is from having excavated two sites this year, is that the ballast is taking up over the top of these blocks to try and stop them spreading laterally. But there's really nothing to stop it from spreading wide to gauge. Yeah. Stockton and Darlington was on these stone blocks. Liverpool and Manchester was in stone blocks. Was it? Was it? 
uh, and they're constantly having problem with the track, particularly in curves where it was spreading because mm. there's nothing to, to retain it. Yeah. Uh, and your mention of tyre bars on the uh, Leeds and Selby Railway, which was the first mainline railway in Yorkshire, which opened in September 1834, that had wrought iron tyre bars to keep it to gauge. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Liverpool and Manchester did use wooden sleepers, but they were only temporary because they used them on the embankments where it was thought that the weight of the stones would sink. And famously, they used wooden sleepers on Chat Moss going over a bog. Yeah. Where the stone sleepers would very rapidly disappear, yeah, think, yeah. Bob, yeah. because the belief was that the railway structure had to be as solid as possible. Yeah, it's it's very interesting that because uh, to me, in my mind, the railway sleeper seems such a simple but great solution to that. But then, of course, then there's these legacies of having to deal with horses and things like that, yeah. of course. So they, they yeah. hadn't they hadn't realised that the railway's dynamic and it needs to be elastic. Yeah, George Stevenson hadn't. Brunel hadn't. Mm. The first chap to recognise it was again Liverpool and Manchester called Edward Woods, who went, "Hang on a minute, we've got this all the wrong way around, guys. The area of our track with the least amount of rail breakage or wheel breakage is Chat Moss. Yeah, why is this?" Oh, it's because it's springy. Yeah. The highest proportion of rail and wheel breakages was on Olive Mount Cutting, mm. which is a stone cut cutting, where the rails and chairs were just literally laid on the stone floor oh. of the cutting. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Because the thought was it has to be absolutely rock solid. Yes. It's not going to work. It's going to break your wheels, break your rail. So he was the first one to recognise it. And from then on, you very slowly get this adoption of wooden sleepers as standard. But it yeah. takes years to catch on. Uh, it's, it's, it's very interesting. I, you know, my logic would have kind of uh, thought the other way around almost, you know, that you'd start with the basic thing of the sleeper. And, uh, you know, I almost imagine the Italian railway engineers were almost over-engineering what they were trying to do in, in the case of uh, no, Williams Railway. No, was doing in British, but perfectly yeah. standard. Yeah, yeah. Just touching on this thing, the railway had these towers about, I'm not quite sure what intermittent they were, Um I suspect maybe a mile, two miles. I, I think, I suppose, I imagine it's how far someone could see, mm. you know, down the track with a flag and wave it. But um, you'd say that's quite an unusual. You hadn't sort of come across that example of that before. That it, To me, it seems a bit over the top because when I look at the track, it's pretty well straight all the way from Milan to Monza. There's not much deviation. Perhaps they were just safety concerns. I don't know what why that might have been it, the case. It would probably be an improvement on what they're doing on Britain. And Liverpool and Manchester, for the signalling, you had a, a constable with a set of flags every mile. Right, yeah. And whether they were in visual communication, no idea. Right. So elevating them on a tower, at least, would have been an improvement yeah. on that. It so. would help with sighting, and you yes. get a better view of it. Yes, yeah. Um, and this is because, of course, before semaphore signalling came along. Yeah. So they're still de- basically dealing with little men with flags every mile or so. Yeah. <laughs> trying to communicate with each other. And the problem is, of course, is no one be able to communicate with a train because these these were worked usually on a time interval system where it was important that a train would be set off every 20 minutes or so and they would continue to set off trains every 20 minutes or so because as far as they were aware, it was safe. The d- default signalling at that period was all clear. Now it's danger. Yes. And no one was to know something had gone wrong until someone came running up saying there's been a terrible smash around the next curve, yeah. and you're still dispatching trains into this thing. 
Um, because when I first read about Williams Railway being the second railway in Italy, as opposed to the first one, which I think you have done a video on the first one, which I've yeah. seen. That is it Naples to Porcini or yeah, yeah. I bit unfairly said that was a bit of a vanity project for the Duke or whatever it was, so he could go from his palace to the beach. I think <laughs> I, 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 I think I'm being a bit unfair there. Um, it was actually a bit more of a genuine transport solution, I think, that first railway, wasn't it, than I? Yeah. <laughs> but um, it does strike me that Italy was a little bit behind the curve of other European nations in developing their railways, but certainly from the passenger figures that um, William talks about, it very quickly proved how efficient it was in moving people. And I think they're really, as in, in, the, in the UK, there was this railway explosion or railway mania as it sometimes turns, isn't it? I imagine that was happening all over Europe as we've kind of touched on, really. Yeah, there was this mania. There was this everyone trying to keep up with each other, this very rapid adoption of the railway because not only was it convenient, but it was good business. Hmm. You could put money in it and they were profitable. You got money out at the other end hmm. Hmm. in dividend payments of shareholders. Um, and a lot of European railways were, in fact, funded by financiers from Britain. Right. So you have a, a very strong group of financiers from Liverpool, called the Liverpool Party, who are mostly Quakers and other nonconformists. They bankroll Liverpool and Manchester and other, other railways in the north, but then they also spread their wings, so, so to speak, and they start financing railways across Europe. Mm. But much of their wealth to invest in railways in the 1930s is largely due to the uh, slavery compensation payments, yeah, which, yeah. which funds that first wave in the 1830s. And by the 1840s, this thing, whole thing has just snowballed as, as a means to get rich quick. So they're moving their money away from slavery and into the railways, I suppose. Because yeah. it's, it's, it's yeah. instant money. Yeah. And where, yeah, you, yeah. where you end up with, not just in Britain, but across Europe, where you have railway companies started, which exist only on paper. We have people owning shares in a company that doesn't actually exist who think they're going to become amazingly rich. But when the whole bubble crashes 1846 to 1848, the whole lot comes crashing down. Yeah. Because it was it was like the dot-com boom. <laughs> there was nothing really behind it. Yeah. It, it had inflated too quickly. Yeah. And the only way was down from that point where yeah. the, whole just th- the whole lot just imploded. Yeah. It's funny, you literally beat me to the point there that it, I, I, that, that comparison with the dot-com thing is very much uh, also in the beginning of the technology and how it was transformative, but also then, in, as you say, in the collapse of it. Yeah. Uh, is a very good comparison to make, really, isn't it? A very suitable one. Um, not much further to go now, but I was just going to say, in terms of after 1840 and the development of the railways, I mean, William's very much at this time when it's transitioning. He travels by stagecoach down from London to Dover. And when he gets to Dover, he's talking about how they're actually cutting the tunnel from Folkestone, I think it is, to Dover. And he makes a reference to William Cubitt's involvement in the railway and says, you know, this will stand for all time as a, a glorious mark of engineering or, you know, kind of a, a monument to engineering is sort of the term that he uses. But uh, I suppose, yeah, I, I kind of just that whole transformative effect because he, he says, oh, because he talks about the gruff coachman telling him to get on and off the coach, the stagecoach, you know, when they stop at Chatham on the way down and stuff like this. You know, he says, 
in the next two years so he's because he's writing this a little bit later about four years later that has all been transformed so again it shows how rapidly this was you know but in those two years the railway from london to dover had been built and like you say that's how everyone would now travel and one of the major impetuses for that change in britain to the southern channel ports and across europe was also defense because in Britain, it meant you could get soldiers quicker down to the Channel ports in case of invasion, yeah, so in yeah. Portsmouth or, or Southampton. But it also meant you could get your soldiers around the country quicker for internal defence as well, because there was no police and soldiers were used on policing duties. Mm. And the same was true in Europe, where in Britain, the network just basically grew thanks to laissez-faire capitalism. Yeah, yeah. Across Europe there was much more regulation and the governments had a much more involved role with the railways because they would identify strategic routes. They would offer a tender to a private company to build and operate the thing, Hmm. which is one reason why there's less route mileage because the routes are more strategic. There's no duplication. Hmm. And because you have this sense of they're doing more than moving people. These These are economic routes but there are also military routes. Mm. So you have this hub of railways being built out of Paris, heading again towards the French Channel ports, but also heading out east towards the Belgian frontier, mm. and then down to Lyon, Marseille, joining up France. And the same thing, Belgium building railways to its ports and its frontiers, and same in Germany. Mm. So it's all about moving goods and people, but it's also they're looking at it with an eye of moving soldiers. Mm. And literally within 25 years of the Liverpool and Manchester railway opening, you've got a railway being built actually in a war zone during the Crimean War. Yeah. That's a quarter of a century going from the first public railway to the railway being a a war-winning weapon. Yes. Massive development. Yes. Sorry, that's a very interesting point that I hadn't really uh, appreciated is that whole strategic kind of military side of it that, as you say, in in Europe, from what you're telling me... um, was also a big motivation for building the railways. And, and I suppose there's, there is this massive overhang of the Napoleonic Wars and everything, isn't it? You've talked on it economically, but it's just, uh, it's very pervasive. Even I still, you know, in, in much of what William's referring to, that whole thing overhangs uh, even in those years. It still overhangs. And in a way, it's not surprising, is it? Because it's not that long, 1815, when... Napoleon's finally defeated. You're talking 15 years. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. But 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 it's it's also a means of creating a country, if that makes sense. Yes. Because it suddenly means the centre of the government is in more control of the periphery. Mm. Napoleon III said that the railways were a veritable army of peace, and he saw them as a means of nation building. Mm. Mm. You're bringing a country together. You suddenly start to have, say, in Britain or France, you have the same time zones introduced you no longer have local time you have Mm. london or you have paris time Mm. again using a french example you're going from having parisian french as the language of the state and lots of regional patois to suddenly you have a greater means of extending french parisian french across the country same with germany bringing together what was a, a, a patchwork of countries into a single country and again with italy yes yes a complete patchwork, but you're suddenly starting to see these railways joining up. Yes. This little patchwork of countries. Yes. Yes. Particularly in the 1830s, when you have this 
renewed nationalism mm. on the back of the French Revolution of 1830. You have the Belgian Revolution of 1830. You see have Belgian coming into existence. Mm-hmm. You have the Carbonari in Italy, and you have the first flowering of the Italian republics, and it moves towards a unified Italy in the 30s. Mm. You have it then in 1848. Mm. Yes. It's, it's, it's the railway is creating a sense of nationhood. Yes, yes. That's a very interesting point, actually, which I hadn't really thought of. But yes, it's this means of communication, isn't it? It's bringing everybody, both politically and as societies, closer together. And now I think about it, that whole thing of German unification and Italian unification happening along those same timelines as the railways are developing is... Um, it's very noticeable, isn't it? I hadn't really made that association before, it's, but but of it, course it, it yeah. it's the same with the idea of of railways making America. Mm. So what they did is the only way you could communicate between the east and west coast is by railway. You have the railway in the nineteenth century is a mechanism for making nations. Mm. Yeah, that's that's a very interesting point. Well, I, I've pretty well covered most things I wanted to talk about. Anthony, but uh, just out of interest, I noticed that on one of your videos, you talk about a railway exported to Mexico, and that's actually after he spends his two years in uh, Milan. That's where William ends up going to work in the mm. mint out in uh, in Mexico. But at that time, I think um, I think the railway, uh, the engine you're talking about, is sports about the t- about the same time. But I think the development of railways in Mexico was was much slower. Even the technology he's talking about in terms of the mint and making coins and stuff is still very much horse and cart kind of era rather than steam era. And that, that's obviously why he's there to try and bring more mechanization into it. But uh, but yeah, I, <laughs> I think perhaps railways in South America took a bit longer to develop than. Uh, Certainly in the, the, the north of America, uh, yeah. northern America. Lack of money. Yeah. And being largely a, a rural agrarian society. Yeah. There's no, there's no major centres to join up, as it were. Yeah. Well, I, thanks very much for your time, and It's been a very, very interesting discussion and really, as I say, several points that I hadn't thought of before and, and associations about things in the development. And, uh, it is a fascinating time, as I say. I fairly early on just made this comparison with the IT or whatever you want to call it, internet revolution that we've lived through. But this was a very similar, if not even more impactful, development of technology. Really, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, great. Well, once again, thanks. Thanks for your time. And uh, no, thank um, you. Yes, if I ever manage to uh, get the time to actually. Uh, get to Milan maybe you'd like to come out there with me we could could perhaps um, explore what evidence there is of this railway there the original Milan station is there as a hotel I don't Mm. know what else would be there now I mean Milan obviously is very industrial changed hugely since that time so but but yeah I'll let you know if I (laughs) if I manage to get the time fantastic that's great Andy thanks thanks very much June 20th, 1840. This day was signalled by the starting of the first locomotive engine in Milan, the Lombarda, manufactured by Messrs. Rennie of London. It had become generally known in the city that this was the day appointed for the trial, and long before the hour of two, the time specified, not less than twenty to 30,000 people had assembled at every point where it were possible to obtain a view of the railroad. 
Everything progressed according to my expectations, for to be alone with a heavy charge like this in a strange country and unable to speak the language is no enviable task. At a few minutes before two o'clock, I turned on the steam and the engine moved out of the station like a thing possessed of life and vitality, amidst the cheers of the assembled thousands. Indeed, so loud were their vociferations as to completely drown the noise of the steam escaping from the engine. The road at that period was not finished more than a mile in length, so that I kept going and returning that distance for one hour and a half, until I was perfectly satisfied of the efficacy of the boiler and the mechanism. Having done which, I ordered the fire to be drawn, and then allowed the water and steam to escape from the boiler through the cocks fixed for that purpose. A great number of the higher classes had been admitted into the station, and most of them, to satisfy their curiosity, got as near the engine as they possibly could, little thinking what a threat there was in store for them. For the moment the cocks was opened, they was completely immersed in steam, and the immense noise terrified them to such a degree that they were tumbling about and over one another in all directions, amidst the jeers and laughter of those who had not been able to get access to the interior of the station yard. So I'll just cut in here to finish on that extract of William describing the first trial that he did of the locomotive. Obviously it was a big deal because there was, as he says, 20 to 30,000 people turned up just to watch this trial, just to watch him going <laughs> forwards over a mile and then uh, back again. <laughs> it obviously was a momentous occasion for the people of Lombardy, Venetia. But I just thought I'd include that extract to give you a little flavour of William describing his railway exploits. In truth, the journals don't consist wholly of his experiences on the railway. The majority of them are actually his travelling and cultural observations about the places he's seeing and visiting. So most of the journals doesn't consist of him talking too much in depth about his railway engineering expertise. But there's enough there, I think, to make it interesting. And in this first journal, it pretty well covers his whole time working on the railway. And there's certainly some interesting incidents and uh, facts and experiences that he talks about regarding the railway as uh, the rest of the journal carries on. I'd like to thank Anthony once again for doing the interview. I hope you found it as interesting as I did. There were a lot of things in there that Anthony mentioned that I hadn't really considered or certainly didn't know about at all or assumptions that I had that I found were uh, countered by um, his knowledge of the actual history of the railway. So it's very valuable from my point of view as well to get a further understanding of what was happening with the railways at that time. And if you were interested in hearing more about this period of railway history, you can actually watch Anthony's YouTube channel as well, which is called Rail Story, and that's at Anthony Dawson History. And there are loads of videos on there, particularly about this period of the early railway and the steam locomotives that were manufactured at this time. I do hope this episode has stirred your interest and makes you want to consider listening to the rest of the podcast. It really is a unique first-hand account by William of this time in history, so I find it fascinating really, and there's always a lot to talk about sometimes too much to talk about <laughs> in terms of uh, what William raises and discusses. If you do want to contact me, probably the X or Twitter page is the easiest way to do it, or um, the Facebook page. So yeah, any feedback, if you want to get in touch, that'd be great. 
and that is the end of this 25th episode if you have been thanks for listening Thank you.